Good morning, everyone. How are y'all? Okay. We're going to be reading Jude, chapter 1, I mean, verse 1 through 7. You can find it on page 594 in the Bible. That's in the seat pocket in front of you. Okay, and if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take this Bible home with you as our gift to you. Okay, Jude, verses 1 through 7. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is life. Your word is is bread for our souls. And so, God, we pray that we would fully um, engage with your word in our our minds, our spirits, Lord. And even as it applies to the life we live, that even we would surrender our bodies to, to be obedient to your word, God. God, we pray that today would be a day that we would reject passivity and as Jude has instructed us, that we would contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so God, I pray that you would just open our hearts to hear. Lord, bless the word as it goes forth to change us, to transform us. God, I also pray, uh, as I always do, for myself and my weakness, Lord. God, you know how easy it is for my heart to waver. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be steadfast this morning and that I would preach your word as you have directed and that, and that the message would go forth unfiltered uh, through any of my own weakness, Lord God. I, I thank you for this. I surrender to you before this people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So today uh, we're beginning a series... In the tiny little book of Jude, Jude is the next to the last book of the Bible, right next to the book of Revelation. It has only one chapter, and so it shouldn't take us more than two or three years to get through it. Um, The uh, um, 25 verses comprises the entire book of Jude. Um, But what I want you to understand as we go through this book is that its message is timeless. And what I mean by that is that Christians in every generation of the church have benefited from the message of Jude. But more than that, I, I kind of selected this book to go through with you because 
its message is not only timeless, but it's timely. And what I mean by that is that it is particularly relevant to us today. And hopefully we'll see that in the next few weeks. Now, you might notice something in Jude's introduction to his letter that Landy just read us, that he was, as he indicates, the brother of James. Now, when it says the brother of James, this isn't James, the son of Zebedee, the, the brother of John, the disciple of Jesus. This is James, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he's the author of the book of James in the New Testament. And thirdly, and more importantly for our discussion, he's the son of Mary and Joseph, which would make James the brother of Jesus. Now, more interestingly than that, we can all kind of work this out in our heads. If Jude is James's brother and James is the brother of Jesus, what does that make Jude? Jude also is the brother of Jesus. But the, this is, this is uh, interesting, and we, we see this confirmation of Jude's status, James's status as brothers of the Lord Jesus, in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Jesus has just laid out a bunch of principles, or a bunch of parables, rather, about the kingdom of God, and this is what we read. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now watch. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And you can also see a similar scripture in Mark 6, 3. Now Judas, here in Matthew 13, is the same person here called Jude. It's a contracted form of that Greek name. In Hebrew, he would have been called Judah, or, or Judah, as we would pronounce it, um, it, it which was the, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribe that Jesus came out of. His name was Judah. Now, because of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, we have a natural um, repulsion to that name. I have never asked a pregnant woman, what are you going to name this baby? I'm looking at Judas. I think that's going to be a good name for this child. It doesn't happen. We're repulsed by the name Judas. But what I want you to know is because of messianic hope, in other words, the hope that the Messiah would come, the name Judas or Judah was very, very popular in the first century among the Jews. Why? Because it, it reminded them that the kingdom of David would be restored. David was the king of Judah. He was he was from Judah and the king. And so this name was very, very common. In fact, Jesus had not one, but two disciples named Judas. Very, very common name. But I said all that to say this. Notice that Jude, in his introduction, never ever boasts in his family relationship to Jesus. Never does it. If my brother were famous, let alone if my brother were God, I might be tempted to work that into every single conversation I would ever have. Can you imagine being on a camping trip with a bunch of guys, looking up at the stars, the galaxies, the universe that God has made, leaning over and saying, my brother did that. Can you imagine? But Jude doesn't do that. I, I might be able to do, or try to weasel that into every conversation and, and, and wonder about what advantage being the brother of God might give me. But Jude never mentions it. In fact, he identifies this way. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. 
Instead of tying himself to Jesus biographically in close family relationship and all the status that that might imply, he humbly identifies himself as a mere servant of the Lord Jesus. In fact, when he says this, I, I'm going to give you one of my biblical pet peeves, biblical translation pet peeves. I hate the word most of the time in the New Testament, servant. And here's why. Because most of the translators who have translated the word, the Greek word doulos, into servant, have done so, by, and, and they've taken the punch of that word away. Because the word literally translates slave. So, so Jude here is saying, I am the slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Why is that important? Because we have kind of, just like with the name Judas, we have kind of a cultural aversion, for obvious reasons, to slavery. But, but when that word doulos is used in the Greek, it's trying to portray something very deep. We're not Jesus's butler. We're not his servant. We are his slave. He owns us. He has full command of our lives. What do we just sing? My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Jesus has full control of all of us. He, there's nothing that can be held back from Jesus. We are the slaves of Christ. Everybody agree with that? And this is amazing. Again, there's so many layers to this. This is amazing because Mark chapter 3 tells us at one point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' entire family, if I can put it so casually, thought he was nuts. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he had just totally just slipped off the rails and, and they came to get him. They came to get him so they could probably commit him or take care of him somehow. They thought he was nuts. The, the same group, James and Jude, their mother, thought that Jesus had gone too far and that he was crazy. And then we read on top of that in John chapter 7 verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers, James and Jude, believed in him. So ponder that for a second. What does that tell us? What do we learn from that information? Well, something happened. Something happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that caused at least two of his brothers to believe in him, to follow him, and to serve him as slaves. From this transformation that happened in these two men, two books of the New Testament, that are vital to our faith were born. That's pretty cool to me. So Jude's audience in the, in the introduction is never specified. So we categorize his book as a general epistle. Clues in the book seem to show that he was writing to people who were at least familiar with Judaism. It may have been a completely Jewish audience. It could have been a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but they were familiar with Judaism. It was meant because of this general status for the whole church as opposed to some of Paul's epistles where he was addressing specific situations in specific churches. And although it's general, he still does define his intended audience in three ways. Did you remember what he said? He said, first of all, the people who he's writing to are called. He says that he, he's addressing people who are chosen by God who can take confidence that God has selected them to be born again to a living hope, as Peter says in his epistle. And, and because of that, they are therefore secure. And this is in contrast to those he'll, he'll talk about in just a couple of verses later, where he says that those other people were designated for condemnation. But they're called. 
Then he goes on and he says that this group of people is beloved in God the Father. What does that mean? It means that those who are reading the letter, those to whom it was sent, are united in love to God the Father. They're not outside of his protective gaze. He's not enticing them in. But on the contrary, the people he's writing to are regarded as the apple of God's eye. And then lastly, he says that they are kept for Jesus Christ. And this means, I love this, this means that they are safe. Jude is going to be talking all throughout his letter about a world that is going mad around the people that are reading his letter. The, the bad things are happening. The people are sneaking into the church to, to uh, just sow destruction. And, and the, this ungodliness has crept right into the very midst into the church. But he promises his readers that no matter what, they're protected in the care of Jesus who will never forsake them. They are kept for Jesus Christ. Then Jude concludes his introduction on a tender note, like most of the introductions of, the, of most of the apostles, and he, and he prays that his readers would experience an abundance of mercy, of peace, and of love. And he's not just wishing them well, just like when we write a, at the end of a letter, sincerely or best wishes. He's not just wishing them well, but he's praying that through these things, through mercy, through peace, through love, that they would be prepared for the coming days. So let's get into the meat of his letter. He says, this. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude announces that his original intent in writing has changed and how the current need of the church he's writing to has redirected his message. He had hoped to write instructions or encouragement or revelation about the salvation that we that has been revealed in Jesus. It probably, if he followed through with that intent, probably this letter might have looked more like Romans or more like Galatians. But a crisis was developing that changed all of that, that redirected his course. And so now he puts forth an urgent and direct appeal, instructing his readers with these words, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now this Greek word contend comes from, or this verb contend in the English, comes from a Greek root that is agonizomai. And agonizomai is the, is the root of the English agonize. To, 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 you know, put something into this. When he says contend, it means to contend with adversaries, to fight, to struggle with difficulties or dangers, to endeavor with strenuous zeal or strive to obtain something. It implies the exertion of tremendous effort when he says contend for the faith. In saying contend for the faith, Jude is saying both that the gospel requires a determined, consistent defense and that the gospel is worth fighting for. Amen? But there are many things. The reason we have to really analyze what... You know, Jude is saying to us here is because there's many things in our world today and in most of our churches that people call gospel. So you have all these various gospels 
And we have to ask ourselves, which one of these is Jude talking about? Well, lucky for us, he clarifies. He says, this is the gospel I'm talking about, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He means, now listen to me carefully what this means. He's saying that the gospel that has been given to us is not a gospel that's waiting for any edits. It's not waiting for clearer revelation. It's not waiting for improvements. And when he says this, he's saying that it was delivered once for all. Your faith, if you are truly a believer in Jesus, listen to me carefully, if you are truly a believer in Jesus, your faith is not a work in progress. Now your sanctification might be, your discipleship will be, but the foundation of what you believe that made you a believer never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There you are, your faith, the gospel it's built upon is not a work in progress. It's settled. Our faith is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ who said as he died as a substitutionary atonement on the cross for us, he said, it is finished. The work is done. The gospel is complete. And furthermore, we are not discovering new truths or uncovering secret knowledge about this faith. But God in His faithfulness has made everything necessary. Everything that we need to know has now, past tense, been delivered to the saints. Wow. Wow. How great of a, of a confidence does that give you? That we're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and in the news, that we're going to get a news flash that the 67th book of the Bible has been revealed or found. No! What God wants us to know about life in Christ Jesus has been delivered to us once for all. That's good news. That's great news. God in His faithfulness has made sure that everything necessary has been delivered to the saints. The life of Jesus, the teaching of His apostles by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us everything we need to know about this good news of salvation. And it's vital for Jude's readers, therefore, to reject anything new that's presented as coming from God because of this. So, this is where we are. We're in the first century, and this heresy has, has worked its way through the church. Now, this heresy is, is identified by a lot of different isms. So there's different types of this heresy, but this heresy that, that Jude is addressing is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, in its basic root, taught this, that only elite people have access to deep spiritual revelation, spiritual insight. But Jude is contradicting that when he says the faith was delivered to the saints. Now, who are the saints? Is it people that, that you can get a little medal of or have a little statue of in your house? No, the saints are you if you're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the saints are all the people since the death and, and resurrection of Jesus who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and God has given the all truth to the saints, meaning all of us who place our trust in Jesus. But it's these Gnostics that Jude is writing against in his short letter. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. First, he says that they 
crept in unnoticed. Well, how is that even possible? Well, they did it like they do it today in, in 2021 America. They do it through persuasive and through spiritual sounding arguments. False teachers don't wear t-shirts announcing that they're deceivers. Man, wouldn't that be great? They should pass a law that if you're going to deceive the church, you should wear a t-shirt identifying yourself as such. Jesus predicted this was coming. He said, for false Christ, Matthew 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus is saying it's not possible to lead astray the, the elect. They can't deceive the elect. But sometimes they're just sneaky enough to creep in right among us stealthily. They crept in unnoticed is what Jude says. Second, second that says that they were long ago designated for this condemnation. Now, people trip on this verse and many others like it in scriptures and they say, well, wait, they were already designated for condemnation. Why didn't somebody preach repentance to them and, and, you know, tell them about Jesus so they could get saved? Well, listen to how Jesus defines the state of all humanity. Listen to what he says. John three eighteen. By the way, two verses past the world's most famous verse that everybody loves to quote, how God loved the world and gave his only son. Beautiful verse. But then just two verses later, Jesus says this, whoever does not believe is condemned already not will be not when all the scales are balanced but he says that those who do not believe are condemned already that kind of thing is a new perspective doesn't it why are they condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God and like I said some struggle with the idea that there are some who are already condemned while others are kept for Jesus Christ but over and over and over this is the clear teaching of scripture it's harder for some to believe that in every church including this one there are people who are kept and there are people who are condemned but Jesus told us that that's how life in the kingdom of God on earth would be Jesus told a parable about this very truth, about a farmer who planted wheat in his field. And while an enemy, after he had planted the wheat, an enemy snuck in at night and planted weeds right over his wheat. When the workers noticed that the weeds were growing, they asked the farmer, said, hey, should we pull these up? And because the type of weeds that they planted looked so much like wheat, it's really hard to tell which was wheat and which was weeds. And, and so... The farmer was concerned that in pulling up the weeds, they might damage the wheat. And therefore, what he told them that they should do is wait until harvest. And at the harvest time, they would separate the two then. The wheat would be taken into the barn and the weeds would be burned in the fire. And Jesus, pulling his disciples aside, explained the symbolism clearly that he had used in this parable. He said... The Bible says in Matthew 13, it says that he answered, The one who sows the good seed, the one who does the planting of the good seed, is the Son of Man, or Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age when the reapers... And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, you may ask yourself, well, if some are condemned and some are kept, how do I know? How do I know which category that I fall in? Easy. The only way that you know that you're among the kept and not the condemned is to right now or at some point previous to place your trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and follow Jesus obediently in everything he commands by the Holy Spirit's power. You know how that shows you that you're kept versus condemned? Because the Bible says that no one can come to Christ unless God draws them. And so if you come to Christ, today, if today is your day and you come to Christ, it is because God is calling you, God is drawing you, and he's saying, that one's mine. That one is kept for Jesus Christ. Jude also tells us that these people are ungodly. Now, that doesn't just mean that they're immoral. That's usually what we mean when we say somebody's ungodly. They do something terribly sinful and we say, well, that was just ungodly. But what he's saying is deeper than that. He's saying that they are against everything that God is for. Everything that God, that God stands for, they are uh, going the opposite direction, working against what God is for. It literally is the spirit of Antichrist to call them ungodly. The evidence of this reality is that they routinely pervert the grace of our God. These are Jude's words. Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there's two sides to this coin. First, to pervert the grace of God into sensuality means that you make following Christ Jesus all about your senses. Usually we uh, think of sensuality only as sexuality, but he's saying that their senses, their sensuality is, is how they approach Jesus. So they ask questions like, how does Jesus, how do this church and how do you know the, his commands make me feel? How do I benefit? What's in it for me by following Jesus? But serving God, listen to me carefully. Serving God is not primarily about personal advantages or self-improvement. So, the, the serving God is not some Ponzi scheme or, or pyramid scheme where you try to get to the top because of some advantage you have for serving God. Serving God is about your obedience prompted by your recognition of Christ's holiness, His beauty, and His worthiness. That's what makes us followers of Jesus. Now, I don't want to, to go so far off that you don't hear what I'm saying. There are tremendous advantages to following Christ. The chief among them is knowing Jesus. Close second is eternal life. There are tremendous advantages to following Jesus. But to use, what I'm saying is to use godliness only as a means for personal gain is literally to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. Because when I'm seeking Jesus for his benefits, all I'm saying is I'm the Lord and Jesus has to deliver. You guys following me? And he says by perverting the grace of the Lord Jesus, they are actually denying the lordship of the Lord Jesus. Because we follow him and we obey him and we love him because he's God. And his holiness and the perfection of that holiness demands that we follow, love, and serve him. That's why we follow him. Not because, you know, we're going to get a better job or more money or, you know, the, the relationship that we want. We follow him because he's God. 
And he's worthy of us laying down our lives. Even if we get nothing in return, he's worthy of that. This is what led Job to say when he saw his, his world crumble all around him. He looked up to heaven and he said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Jude moves on to give us three examples of God's holy justice poured out because of a refusal of his grace and a rejection of his fellowship. First, he mentions the children of Israel whom God saved out of slavery in Egypt through Moses' leadership. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, pay attention to who he's attributing this to, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now I said, take notice of that. Notice that Jude makes Jesus the deliverer of his people out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. One thing that you'll often hear when people are you know, challenging God's word, or maybe they're coming from an atheistic standpoint in a debate or something, is they'll say, well, you can go through all four gospels and find that Jesus never claimed to be God. First of all, that's completely false. It's the easiest thing to see in scripture. But look at this. If Judas telling us that Jesus was the, the, the acting agent of the, of the Exodus, pouring out plagues, dividing the Red Sea, I think that would pretty well indicate that Jesus was God. Amen. But his point is not that. His point is that after saving his people out of slavery, after this miraculous series of events, unexplainable outside of the hand of God, after all that, they're out of slavery, they're freed from Egypt, Egypt's armies are destroyed. It's at that point that the people choose to cling to idolatry, to immorality, to grumbling and rebellion. God, justly because of this, let their bodies drop over a 40-year period in the dust of the desert. And those people never received the inheritance and the rest that awaited them in the land flowing with milk and honey. And if that's true, this is, this is more to, Jane, to Jude's point, if that's true, do you think that the Gnostics... And, and the people like them will be safe because they do a few religious things or hang out among the church. While all the while they're clinging to all manner, all different kinds of idols. And they're harboring a multitude of secret sins and they're grumbling against God's lordship by their disobedience. Next, Jude mentions that the angelic beings themselves that rebelled with Satan are under God's judgment. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, listen to me. Think about that. We're, we're very familiar with the idea of angels and demons and the fall of Satan and stuff, but I want you to think about this, especially those of you who might take great comfort in your spirituality, your religion. Listen to me. Who could possibly be safer from the need for judgment than the very beings who witnessed 24-7 the power and the glory of God unfiltered? I mean, if anybody should have never rebelled against God, it's the ones that, that stand around his throne seeing his face day and night. Is that a fair thing to say? And yet, in pride, 
They abandoned, Jude tells us, their glorious estate and they joined Satan in his foolish resistance against the king of kings. And, and in doing so, they became agents of his deceptions to this very day. So therefore, God has chained them, it says, in gloomy darkness as they await their final terrible judgment. And what is Jude telling us? He says, that is a warning for us. None of the angels were, were ever had Jesus die for them. And yet we've been, we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. How do you think that God will treat those humans who willingly conspire with, with wickedness and with evil spirits? How do you think God will, will, will treat those who conspire with them in their treachery? They will suffer no less a fate, I assure you. Lastly, Jude reminds his readers of the fate of those who rebelled in the most egregious ways, even among those who were a gospel witness to them. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now listen, the, the, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of like what I said about Judas earlier. We all have an opinion and, and, and what that was. But I want you to know, God in his mercy uh, sent Abraham to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, if you'll read Genesis 14, uh, Abraham actually rescued the entire city of Sodom when they were taken over by a foreign king. More than that, they dwelt with righteous Lot right in the midst of them. James calls him righteous Lot. He didn't have a perfect life. We know that from his story. But he dwelt with righteous Lot and and saw what Abraham did. And they ignored, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah ignored the example of Abraham and Lot and elevated their sensual, sexual desires above righteous living. They said, we choose this and not that. Abraham is blessed. He has a covenant with God, but we choose this. So think about it. The Gnostics, the false converts living among God's elect, who insist on all manner of immorality and sensuality as a replacement for holiness, will not escape fiery judgment any more than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did. In fact, Jude sees... The judgment on Sodom is a vivid display of the eternal conscience torment that awaits the uh, the unrighteous in hell. And he calls it a punishment of eternal fire. Now listen, I know that this is a, a, you know, an unpopular subject. False teachers everywhere for years have been telling us that this place doesn't exist. It's figurative. But uh, I'm telling you, you cannot read the Bible, especially the New Testament, especially the words of Jesus, and miss the fact that there is a literal place of torment that we call hell. But I guarantee you, all the deniers, all the ones who, who did, you know, take away from the lordship of Jesus Christ, perverting it in their sensuality will be convinced one day that there is a hell when they're judged. Now listen, Jude's going to have a lot more to say about contending for the faith in the coming weeks to us. He's going to show us more vividly the character of false teachers and false believers who would rob us of our freedom in Jesus and and who would drag us into the same condemnation from which they can never escape. So let's take heed. Let me tell you something. This message is not about 
first century Gnostics. There are people all throughout life, all throughout the church, that are trying to sell you a lesser gospel, a lesser gospel that will rob you of the liberty that can only be found in following Jesus Christ. And, and the reason this is so important is because most of us in our generation, it, it feels like sometimes, I hope this is fair to say, have taken a much more passive stance to the things that Paul, that, that, I'm sorry, that Jude said here. He said to contend for the faith. What does that even mean? Well, I think it means primarily a couple of things that we contend for it by at least at the very most basic level being able to define it. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the gospel? How easily, how thoroughly could you define it? I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying this is what it means. If you hear the words that God is saying to you today then, then, and you recognize that as a weakness, you guys, you have to say, I need to learn how to contend for the faith by being able to define it, by being able to say, this is what the faith, this is what the gospel looks like. And secondarily, to contend for the faith means to defend the gospel because all around you, the gospel is being perverted. It's being questioned. It's being defaced. And, and part of being a contender for the faith is not only defining it and knowing what you believe, but, but seeing it when, it's, when it is perverted and, and calling it into correction. For the sake of those who need to know, for those who are, who are destined to be kept for Jesus Christ, so that they might know, they might believe, and escape the judgment that's coming. So we're going to dig into that much more thoroughly in the coming weeks. But right now I'd like to invite you to stand. We are going to thank God for what He has done for us by remembering uh, the sacrifice of Jesus with communion. So if you would, just come forward if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and receive the elements and then take them back to your seat and we'll take them together. Two simple elements, bread and juice. And what a great reminder of what we have talked about, how that Jesus, the gospel teaches us, did two things. He lived an absolutely righteous life. And in so doing, he was able to offer the Father his own life as a substitution to make atonement for us who were completely unrighteous, totally depraved. And Jesus died for us. And in that exchange, he took on himself our sinfulness and gave us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this, that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And that's what these two simple elements remind us of, that, that Jesus, Jesus is enough, that he has is, he is paid our debt. And not only that, like we talked about last week, because of that, now we can consume him. Now we can take him into ourselves and, and be united together in one body to do his will, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for all the saints. And that's what I'm inviting you to do today. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he 
took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, can you just take a moment and give thanks? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins, that your wrath is satisfied. God, we've been called, those of us who were not the children of God have been called the children of God because of grace that we see so clearly portrayed on the cross. The God, we see both your love and your wrath displayed in one man on your cross. And Lord, we, th- we thank you. We thank you that you have, have exchanged the wrath we deserve for love we do not deserve. God, thank you for calling us into your kingdom. Lord, thank you that we are called, that we're beloved in God the Father, and that we are kept for Jesus. God, we thank you for this simple reminder of these two elements that remind us of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just pronounce this great benediction from the next book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. It says, To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.